Welcome to Story Talking, episode 39. My name is Laksh, I started Launchora, and I host this podcast where I talk to a new storyteller every week. This week, my guest is George Simmons, who is the creator of Diversify, which uh, we will talk about in the podcast, but just to give you an idea, George created um, a methodology and a game which helps people understand other people of different cultures and different backgrounds. So we, we talk at length about that. George has over five decades of experience uh, in dealing with, with, with stories, and, we, and he, he showed me how history, culture, a person, we're all backed up by stories. And what we believe in and what we, what we want, everything comes in the form of a story. And sometimes that, something like that can hold you back. Sometimes it can be hard to let go of the story that you grew up with and how the world changes around you and creates a new story in which may make you feel like you're getting left behind. So we, we talk about all the different ways and, and, and things, how things like that can come out. Um, we're going to talk about George's background at length, but just to give you an idea, George um, has, he went to college in the late 50s to the 60s. He, he has degree after degree uh, in, in theology, psychology, and something I, I should have known before I talked to him, but he told me while we were talking, was that he taught at my university, uh, UC San Diego, uh, about 30 years before I went there. But, you know, George is a very, very impressive guy. And it was, it was an absolute honor to talk to him. Uh, he, you can check out his website at diversify dot com how to spell it you can check it out in the description uh this is one of the most uh i i learned so much one of the most insightful talks i've had so george is george is fascinating and i really enjoyed this i hope you guys do too this is episode 39 of story talking with george simmons Okay. Uh, I grew up in a little town uh, called Bedford, Ohio. There's like 19 Bedfords in the United States because I guess they were all British settlers from <laughs> Bedford in the UK. But I wasn't a British settler. As a matter of fact, one of the major issues around growing up was my grandparents were immigrants, okay, one from Poland and one from Austria. And um, we were in, you know, sort of uh, the minority folks, and there was lots of, as there is today, you know, bias against immigrants. So, uh, in a sense, I, I, I feel like I had two growing growings up. One was in the, in the nest of the family, which was quite close and quite social. And uh, um, then, you know, at a certain point, I popped out into into uh, teenagehood in the U.S. and and discovered a whole different culture when I had to mix with people from all over the place. A good comparison for that is um, in my family, uh, a basic lesson was if everybody helps everybody else, everybody gets helped. Yeah. And of course, when I popped out into the American mainstream, the motto is every, if everybody helps number one themselves, yeah. everybody gets helped. 
you know. Right. So that uh, that was a conflict inside of me of how connected I am to people. I think well until I was almost 50 years old. I mean, that seems to have coalesced in my understanding of myself and others at this point. And uh, I still tend more to the familial core than I do to the every every man for himself uh, philosophy. So how did you manage to uh, find a balance in that family and then the the friends and the people you were meeting outside of that? Well, good question. Um, I think, um, you know, at, at some I think the first thing was to realize the conflict going on inside. Uh, in other words, to say, you know, I've got some uncomfortable feelings. I'm, oh, I'm torn between this and I'm torn between that. And that made it a lot easier for me to make conscious decisions about where I wanted to connect with people and, uh, you know, where I wanted to be independent. And I think, uh, you know, the, the balance came out of the consciousness of being able to see my story and see what happened in my story. And the fact that I was carrying two stories around with me that I, I hadn't realized and looked at. So well, that was it made that that made it. I think, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you call it. You know, you were you were in two separate stories. It's like you, it's like if you were if you were a book, you would be put in two separate sections in different genres. Like one one genre is, yeah, well, is about one thing, and one is from a different perspective. Well, you know, today in the intercultural field, people talk a lot about. Uh, TCKs, third culture yeah, kids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and of course the world is now rife with young people whose parents have gone to work in another. You know they've they've had upbringing in maybe three different countries by the time they're teenagers, and of course you know they they have the identity issues. Uh, but I, I guess what I I often say to these people it's not a new thing. We had it in a slightly different context. Uh, those of us who were immigrants in the past, but um, still it's a, it's a major issue. And what I always do is I look for the pain in people's stories. Okay. Uh, I was teaching in the Philippines and I was teaching negotiation for a banking uh, organization. And there was a young Japanese American woman there. And um, I was talking about, how people negotiate differently in different cultures, you know, what to expect. And this person was sort of outraged. He was saying, you're stereotyping people, you're stereotyping people, okay? And what I discovered was she was very, very sensitive about that by being Japanese-American, okay? So what I, what I learned, learned to do is look for the pain in the story uh, when – People are having difficulty with that sort of thing. You know, it's uh, it, it can be humorous almost sometimes if it wasn't so tragic. I uh, I had another young Japanese woman a, a number of years ago in a course I was teaching in Los Angeles, and uh, this young woman uh, was working in a department store, a big department store um, that existed there in uh, what's called the Valley, the, the the northern part of Los Angeles. And, and uh, this woman came to her, and uh, after a, doing a transaction, she says, honey, where are you from? Okay. And uh, the girl said, well, I'm from right here in the valley. And she says, oh, yeah, but well, where were your parents from? 
Oh, they're from the valley too. Well, how about your grandparents? Oh, they weren't from the valley. They came from Fresno. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, Japanese and Chinese Americans on the West Coast have been there far longer than a lot of the Southern Europeans and Central Europeans who migrated to the East Coast. But because they have a an Asiatic uh, or what people would say East Asian physiognomy immediately, where are you from? You know, that craziness. Yeah. So... You know, um, it's a it's a it's a real challenge these days to both recognize people's culture at the same time as you share. I mean, this is why I'm so interested in stories, because, you know, you can say, well, these people are more collective and these people are more individualistic. These people are more masculine. These people are more feminine. It doesn't tell you anything. It's what are the stories that we've heard that make us who we are and how can we share those stories in such a way that what happens is we we learn about our differences, we learn about the advantages of our differences, we learn how to synergize and create new things, you know. In the kitchen we call it fusion cooking, but it's a, it's a lot more difficult in the workplace, in the boardroom, in the, uh, you know, the business world there. So... Uh, we need more fusion cooking. I like fusion cooking, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's, um, but. I think, so this, this goes back to, I, I mean, I already had this as a question, but I think it makes sense now. You were, you're talking about how you were, you were interested in stories. Is that why you were, because I saw in your profile that you, you studied theology. Well, I, I grew up in a very, very Catholic family, okay? So one of the aspirations was uh, was to be in ministry and so on. So I went through the theological program, and then I went on to graduate school after that um, and studied uh, the history of rituals, okay, and, and comparative religion and things like that, uh, which are, are very sort of concrete manifestations of the differences that people carry around in their cultures and the meanings that they carry. And they're all based on stories. You know, I mean, we can get abstract and say, okay, you know, here, here, one of the values of Catholicism is this, one of the values of Hinduism is this, but, you know, <laughs> look, look at, look at how those things are presented in their history. There's stories, you know, there's stories. I mean, we're riding the chariot together, you know. <laughs> so, um, and what's happened that's really wonderful lately is um, we invented this game, Diversify. Oh, I did it when I was working at a university in the United States as a way of training the young people who are sort of the senior students who are mentoring uh, the incoming younger students. I, I created a game about, you know, the different situations and diversity that happens there. And then uh, several years later, we turned it into a game for uh, teaching people about diversity in the U.S. And this led on to being international versions and so on. But what's happened most recently, which is absolutely really, really satisfying and uh, it's a place where I'm putting lots of energy, is that um, – we started to collaborate on creating games in which migrants and local people would come together in small groups, play the game, okay? And the game, I don't know if you saw my website, diversity.com, 
but there's you know there's 80 some games on there but the ones we're developing now are half about your culture half half about my culture we answer the questions in the safety of a game and uh we learn to to talk to each other we we stop being scared of each other we look each other in the culture so to say and we share the stories about why things are the way they are and uh it's just so exciting to see people walk away uh much more relaxed about the immigration issues on both sides and and also you know having made contact with people as real human beings i, I i'm one of the things that people are asking me is about putting these games online and I'm not against creating some kind of tool for that sort of information, but the fact is that bringing half a dozen, eight, ten people together in a small group to play these things, the human presence makes all the difference. And of course, you know as well as I do that one of the big challenges we have now is is uh, is about the shifting patterns of communication in 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 the current situation i just uh, was reading an article this morning about uh how difficult it is people don't answer the telephone anymore okay and one of the simple reasons is that nine out of ten times it's it's spam you know somebody's trying to sell you something but uh and then um you know the alternative media i i i always have interns here in my office uh well for the last 25 years and I've had kids from, ooh, uh, I think now 19 different cultures around the world. And um, what I've noticed in the last three or four years, as you know, as a as life by iPhone <laughs> continues, a terrible hesitation to talk to people face to face or or make a telephone call. And you know. Uh, sometimes it's, it, 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 it drives me nuts because, you know, they're having a problem with a piece of software. And I'll say, well, um, call up uh, technical support. That's what they're there for. Well, they will, they will spend a week exchanging email messages with technical support rather than call somebody, walk it through, and get it done in five minutes, which is <laughs> – so that's my, that's my old guy's story about uh, – you know, millennials and Generation Z, and uh, I don't know where we go in the alphabet from there. Maybe we start all over again. <laughs> Who knows? I am, I am a victim of 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 that age, and and even the the thing you were talking about uh, when that woman had that person ask where where she's from because she looked different. I had so I yeah. I, I grew up in India, and then I went to to San Diego to go to college. Oh, ah, okay. But when I got UCSD. There, UCSD, yes. Yeah, so, I used to work there. <laughs> you did? Let me see. Probably around 1976, 77. I had a, I had a fellowship. Right, right. And I stayed on the campus, worked on campus. Those were really interesting days, of course, because those were the days Angela Davis was making noise, you yeah, know. And, it was uh, the early years of the university. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... so. I mean, I, 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 so I, I got there and I didn't sound, I mean, I do, I don't sound Indian that much anymore, but I didn't sound Indian back then as well. The typical what people would expect. So I would always hear people asking me, if they asked me where I was from, they expected me to say somewhere on the East Coast or something. 
And I would say, no, you know, I'm from New Delhi. And they're like, no, but when, when did you come here? Were you, were you a kid when you came here? So I had the reverse effect where I had to prove mm -hmm. I was from another culture, that I wasn't American. Right, right. And then I saw a shift in their eyes where they then saw me as another person. Because until then, I was mm -hmm. they, they, they thought because I grew up in their country, we shared a familiar story. But as soon as I would reveal to yeah. them that I'm from a different story, I'm from a different background and everything, people either got more interested or less interested, depending on how much they wanted to mm -hmm. learn about where I was from. Right, right. And of course, all the stereotypes kick in, you know. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. they're wondering, wondering what's wrong with you because you don't talk with enough head shaking, right? And yeah, they didn't believe that. <laughs> That's I, their expectation. I, they didn't believe that I had English in school. They expected me to have learned English when I came there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there were there were lots of things like that. But I'm mostly because I think they just saw The Simpsons a lot, and The Simpsons makes us all look like we're. Oh know, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm the post Simpson, a pre Simpson generation. Right. So I, we had uh, oh, what was it? Uh, there, there was a TV show. I can't think of the guy's name right now, but who was very much. Uh, so American and you know he'd get in an elevator and people would be speaking Spanish and he'd get upset and say stop speaking speak you know <laughs> his name will come to me but yeah yeah so uh, and uh, you know unfortunately uh, there's an enormous challenge as uh, uh, we're living in a world where populism is getting stronger all the time in Europe in the USA um, it's uh, it's really challenging and scary, you know, scary. Um, but um, it's how governments will work as we get more and more strong men, you know, going yeah. in the direction of strong men rather than than uh, functional democratic processes. And uh, you know, I, I think in a lot of places we've taken democracy for for a given that isn't going to change and all of a sudden we see these movements and uh, there was a survey uh, uh, survey I just read the other day by Pew you know P-E-W the survey people and they had a survey that 40, 47% of the young generation coming into the workplace uh, wouldn't care if the government changed right right so um, the, the style of government because it's not doing what it's supposed to do right now. So, you know, if the military takes over, well, okay, let's see what they'll do. You know, they they have sort of that pragmatic uh, sense of it uh, without a lot of history, you know, and that's, um, you know, I, I just put up this post the other day. I don't know if you saw it. I'm sitting on a bench in Bratislava and there's a, statue of a, a a soldier from napoleon's army you know yeah, they had a big yeah. battle at the time and i just put the quotation from napoleon there i'm i'm saying you know um uh our identity comes from the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and uh and he's commenting it's it's a quote directly from napoleon about you know uh, that um uh History is a series of lies that we all believe in. Right, right. You know? And uh, that's led me not only from interest to in the stories that people tell themselves about who they are and who they want to be, but also in what um, 
one of the French sociologists uh, called uh, meta-recites or meta-narratives. In other words, we, we look at the, the big stories that the majority of people take for granted as reality and uh, which are also these kind of fabricated stories, you know, uh, the whole commodification business. Economics, how old is the economic system we have here in the West? Three, four hundred years old. How old is the nation state as we conceive of it? A little more than that, but about the same. Um, and, uh, you know, I just wrote an article the other day about um, uh, the the myths of national identity, you know, how we've selectively created the stories about who we as a people are, A, to exclude other people, and B, to feel okay about ourselves, and C, as probably the crutch that powerful people give us so they can manage us better. So it gets very political at a certain point. I mean, there's a side of storytelling which is sweet and human and pulls us together. And then there's a side the way stories are told to, you know, take us anywhere from conflict to genocide uh, because of the way the stories are, are manipulated. So um, it's um, and, and, you know, it's, this is a moment, uh, especially for me as a U.S. American, when everybody asks you, what do you think about Donald Trump? Okay, <laughs> I don't want to go into that deeply here, but one of the things I want to say is that uh, it's very interesting uh, that Donald Trump is one of the best cultural mediators on the scene at the moment. And what I mean by that is the, the specific definition of somebody who is able to take an idea or a product and so express it that it fits in the mentality, the culture of the target audience. And they, you know, they say, of course, okay, no, no examination necessary because they're hearing reflections of their own storytelling, their own thinking process. So, uh, believe me, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a great supporter at all of Donald Trump. But one needs to recognize where his power comes from, you know, where his influence comes from. And it's, it's, and, and this is, you know, storytelling has sort of uh, hit the scene in intercultural work and psychological work and so on as, hey, this is the greatest thing. Let's pay attention to the stories. And the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, stories uh, are like your automobile. You can use it to rob a bank or you can use it to take the kid to the hospital. Right, right? absolutely. You know, stories can be used very constructively, creatively, and humanly, and they can be used to help us kill each other. And uh, that, that side we're afraid to look at, uh, but that side is very much in, in existence at the moment. I think the what you said about uh, the new generation not caring about what kind of what kind of parties in power or if the you know the the government as they know it gets changed uh, in front of them. I think that that has so much to do with that idea of that dissociation with the rest of the world because we live in our phones and now my phone is my intermediary between me and you and me and the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. me and Donald Trump, me and me and Korea, me and Europe. So if I'm looking at the news, 
I'm not really, people aren't watching the news as much as they're reading the news. And when mm-hmm. you read the news, it, it lacks the context of a newsman telling you what's happening. It somehow right. really lacks that, that empathy that gets created when you, when you hear someone tell their own story rather than reading it off a piece of paper. And I think the, what I've noticed right. is that there's, a, there's an imbalance in, in empathy creation with, with people that are growing up now. Either they're, they're, it's more of like we've reset the idea of I'm going to be nice to you because that's what people used to do. Now we're more questioning, like, why should I be nice to you? Maybe I'll either be nice to you, but I'll have to create that empathy on my own. No one's really teaching it to me anymore. Or I'm going to be mean to you because I don't see the point of continuing a tradition just because we used to do that. And I think that's the thing that Donald Trump, as in in the Trump Trump era, I'm able to talk about it because I'm an outsider. I think that's what he has pressed the button on. He said that, let's question everything. Why do we have to say certain things? Why do we have to be polite? Why do we have to be sensitive to people's mm-hmm. you know, things? And I think that it, it all boils down to, like you said, these stories that we used to believe that were being carried forward as history. And now we're just like, I can just make up a new story and start believing it. And start selling it and get somebody to troll it and all that other sort of stuff. You know, um, there's another side to my story, which I haven't mentioned uh, so far, and that is um, back in the uh, middle 1970s, it was sort of the adolescence of the feminist movement in the United States. I and a friend of mine created a men's center. And what we did was we brought guys together, and uh, this was a point in which guys were just sort of flailing around. You know, my secretary hates me. My sister doesn't think I'm very good. My mother is about to get rid of me as, as, as feminist uh, attitudes sort of shot in. Actually, for a number of years, we did a weekend workshop called How to Love an Angry Woman. Uh, and it was well attended. And... Um, but the issue here is is interesting because um, uh, I think it's coming to a head in the sense that um, women, and this is good. I'm not I'm not I'm not a critique of feminist uh, uh, movement by any means. As a matter of fact, I support women and getting what they need to to make their lives effective and so on. But women have a more have a sense of purpose of where they need to go, and the boys are flailing around. Uh, a colleague of mine, Warren Farrell, just wrote a book earlier this year with John Gray. You may remember, uh, um, I don't know if you know this literature or not, uh, Warren, ooh, I think 10, 12 years ago, I can't remember the exact date, put out a book called Why Men Are the Way They Are. And John Gray uh, was the founder of this movement, which says, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Well, they've collaborated on a book recently, which is, uh, uh, the book is about the boy crisis and the fact that young men uh, are lacking, I mean, the, the, the old imposed sense of purpose, you are the defender and the provider, okay, uh, that, you know, it's women and children who are valuable, you're disposable as long as you can preserve them. And uh, that, uh, 
that role of provider, okay, women are being able to make more money on their own and do their own kind of things. That's been weakening. Uh, we try to create as many wars as we can, but still nobody, not everybody gets the experience of, of being a military defender by any means, and that's, that's passe also. So a sense of purpose is very much missing. And so also the kind of fatherhood, the presence of fathers that will connect boys to their masculinity and help them develop it in new ways is, is very much lacking in our, in our cultures. Um, you know, in many places, dad's the guy who gets up at six o'clock in the morning, has breakfast, disappears, come back at six o'clock at night, and he's too tired to do anything, okay? And, uh, and then we have all the break. I don't want to go into all the detail about this sort of stuff, but it's, I was talking to another one of my colleagues. I, I'm an occasional lecturer in the university, and I was talking to the guy, one of the guys who was uh, head of the department where I come and lecture, and he says, you know, boys are not cutting it. Boys are not making it. And uh, at least in our European, U.S. context, there are more women in the universities these days than men. Okay. And, uh, and I think also, you know, if we want to look at why Donald Trump's so successful with the target group that he has, it's that men are hurting. Men are hurting. And, uh, you know, uh, suicide rates are, of men are enormous compared to those of women. Uh, that's a major issue also going on. So finding a sense of purpose, uh, this is stuff I'm trying to poke around with and, uh, you know, find stories and, and, and find ways of uh, supporting young guys. And also, you know, the story of fathering, um, women aren't getting any fathering either, okay? We, we maybe automatically think, that, uh, you know, well, mom takes care of what the girls are going to be. But as roles change, you know, um, the absent father is a major, major thing. I mean, another one of my colleagues back then started, a, he also did a seminar on the weekends uh, called Healing the Father Wound. Gordon Clay was uh, his name. And uh, Gordon and I still are still in touch on some of these things. But fundamentally, it was about how do, how do you make up for the absent father whom you probably at some level were angry with or disappointed with or heard your mother saying, don't be like your father, <laughs> you know, those kind of messages. Um and how to how to heal that that wound? And uh, I, if you can imagine sitting in a room with 200 men, who coming to grips with their father's story are all crying. I've been there. I've been there. I've seen you know, and guys searching out their fathers to to reestablish contact and so on. Is so much of the alienation, and you know, now that most marriages are ending in divorce, mother gets the children, you know, and father doesn't get any time with them either, you know. It's, so it's not no no improvement to the situation. So father's the wrong guy, and you know, you don't want. Where do you want boys to take their role models from? And this is something that came upon me, you know, when I started doing this men's work, because I was enormously privileged in my generation. 
My father had his shop right in front of our house. My grandfather, my mother's dad, lived with us. And uh, my other grandfather had his tailor shop two blocks down the street. I grew up with three men who knew what they were doing and ha- always had invited me in to be involved. And, you know, I'd be down in the basement pounding on something. My, my one grandfather was a blacksmith from uh, from Poland, okay, uh, emigrant. And, um, of course, uh, he wasn't – there was no Poland. He was in the Russian army, but he was a master blacksmith and uh, the other the other grandfather, you know, was a, was a – uh, a journeyman tailor, and when he came to the United States to study fashion in New York, and he decided to stay. So I was so lucky, you know. And of course, my dad was a barber, which meant I hung up the bar, I hung out in the barber shop, which is the closest thing you could find to a men's club back in those days, you know. So I, was, I really, you know, and I didn't realize how how empty of fatherhood were not only so many of our my contemporaries, but even the next generation. I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, fatherhood has, you know, disappeared. You know, if you're out on the farm, you're helping dad do this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, when dad disappears in the morning and appears at night, um, if if that, you know, what do you do? Um, I, uh, I so, you know, I when I was a kid, I was... Almost every weekend, if the weather was good enough, my dad and his buddies went fishing, and I went along with them. You know, so I'd, I had lots of male companionship and male models, and lots of diversity in that. Uh, and um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the age of diversity and intercultural studies by any means, but these folks with great great different backgrounds. Were the guys who lived together, you know, cussed at each other and played games with each other and had a good time, uh, which was very, very, very good part of my story anyway. Mm-hmm. I think the, the thing you mentioned about um, all the story being a vehicle that can either be used for good or for evil, I think, and I think you posted something, you posted a manhood game today as well, I think, right? The a game card. Yeah, every day I put a little right? card up. Yeah, and and I was reading it, and I and I now that, that you just mentioned, I was thinking that I think that's maybe that's the thing, and that people are hard, finding it hard to let go of the stories they were told when they were young. You know, when right. when when people when a boy was, you know, I guess, and it, I mean, I, I can speak from an Indian perspective, but the definition of what a man is supposed to do. Is something you're told very early when you're a boy that this is what a man mm-hmm. does for the family. But now, mm-hmm. at least the one, the generation I'm growing up in, there's that's not what I see my nieces and nephews having to go through. Now they're not being told right. that this is what right. is expected of you, and they can make their own choices. But I would understand that maybe that is the thing you you also mentioned about the people who support Trump are hurting because they're being told that you're pretty much extinct and the new wave is coming and people no. are going to react when they're told that your way of the world is not really what we're interested in anymore. We're going to change the story now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where do you find the solidarity, for example? Okay. You know, men found solidarity in their sports teams and their military units and uh, things of that sort. 
uh, in their men's clubs to some degree. But today, where do you find solidarity around an identity? Women have a lot more of it. And, uh, you know, uh, because they're striving to make progress as women, uh, which is a wonderful thing, they, they have a much clearer identity and, and sense of where they're going often uh, than, than certainly men do. So uh, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea. I don't have any kids of my own, but, um, you know, I, I'm constantly dealing with young people, both in my classes uh, when I'm teaching and my interns here and uh, – Saying, you know, I, and, and I, the terrible part about it is um, I'm somewhat well known in the intercultural field. So I'm frequently approached by people to, who want a little bit of mentoring or advice about how to do this, how to do that, and so on and so forth. Well, I, you know, the world that they're, that they're trying to make headway in is so very different from the one. I don't know how I did it. I grandfathered into it. I never had a course in intercultural stuff, you know. We just started we just started doing socially significant things when I was in college and uh it went on from there. I mean, I it was it just it was part of the natural solidarity they got from family and then uh as I was in graduate school, it was when there were lots of the race riots and stuff in the USA and my classmates and mine and I got involved in helping people talk to each other uh we picked up one of the programs that the uh the national association uh, for the advancement of colored people had created which was uh the inter interracial home visit okay so we'd we'd organize an italian family to visit a black family you know this friday night and coffee and whatever and then the next friday they'd go to their home and it was it was i think part of that is also what stuck in my mind as the design of having games that people play that help them talk about their own stories their own values their own cultural identity stories and so on but um you know and it just sort of went on from there and uh you know then diversity became a big movement in the united states um starting with social justice but all too quick in order to try to get organizations on board you know, it was a, it was about legal rights uh, for people, and of course, you probably uh, everybody has heard uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks about the Starbucks incident and Starbucks reaction now of of closing down for an afternoon, at least as a starting point, and telling everybody, let's let's uh, let's 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 get it together, let's let's be serious about this thing, which I think is a great start. But I, I found that, you know, our bias is uh, getting cultural compass, like peeling an onion, okay? You get one layer off, and well, it looks the same pretty much, maybe a little smaller, another layer, another layer. And, you know, it's it's sort of very, very hard, and, and like peeling an onion, you're crying all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Um, I don't know. We just keep on pushing for that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I grew up uh, as I was getting out of grade school. World War II was coming to an end. And we all thought, hey, there's a great future. No more war. Well, lots of luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, lots of luck. 
it's just continues on with one thing it's interesting that you know that you would you you called uh your process a game because it the word game already makes it it already makes it a little non-threatening where you're not you're not you're not putting people on the spot you're because to me it sounds like you're from when i was reading about it on your website i was like oh this is i think you're essentially doing this trick where you're getting people to be in therapy with strangers and talk about talk about each other through these games and to mm-hmm. like you say you know to to become more aware of another person's situation and to understand their their story and where they're coming from and if you understand them it's like giving um i'm i'm less likely to kill a pig to eat it if i name it because i'm connected to that <laughs> pig now i i understand your story i'm not going to be racist yeah. towards you i'm not going to be angry towards you i'm not going to think that you're taking my job or if you deserve the recognition from the world the way they're asking you the way you're demanding because i yeah. know your story now so for me that was that was a, well, that was it, a very interesting aspects of what you're doing yeah it's it's fascinating you mentioned the word therapy but you know the word game is a lot safer space you know we're going to get together it is therapeutic there's no question about it being therapeutic but basically it's a game and and you know, in order to, to keep working on this stuff, I had to familiarize myself a bit with game theory and why it is that that gaming works, you know. Um, and uh, we've created in the game five different kinds of cards, which are different kinds of learning and exchange. And, uh, you know, one of the things is the game sets you in a new reality. And that means it's the safe space of a game. It's like, okay... You know, falling off a cliff is deadly, but riding a roller coaster is is exciting, and you're open, open to new experiences. Okay, so uh, yeah, you know, um, mimicking, uh, mime, you know, uh, being somebody else. Uh, one of the things I frequently do in my when I work at training and teaching and so on is I use uh, uh, theater techniques theater learning techniques you know um the kind of stuff that you do to teach people to do theater and one of the techniques i do is that you know maybe i got a class of a dozen people i'll line up six of them on either side of the room uh you do an improvisational theater training thing which is i put somebody in the middle of the room i usually start with myself and then somebody has to come up from one side and They'll look at me and say, oh, dad, I crashed the car, you know, and then I have to play dad for about two seconds. And then that person stands in the middle. Somebody comes from the other side and says, "Uh, honey, we won the lottery, whatever they come up with, you know. And what I found is that often, uh, you know, this is this is also empathy training in, in a very abstract kind of way, but often. Uh, there are people who are absolutely reluctant to do this. And once they've done it once or twice, they say, wow, can we do it again? You know, because a, a part of them opened up in the safe space of a game and they take that back out into life with them. And that's the same thing that's on in the game we've created for small groups. And uh, there's, you know, lots of, I encourage people different kinds of games to uh, to make things work like that. But the fact that we are able to talk to each other 
safely and uh, sympathetically and make contact, you know. There can also be disagreements and so on. That's why we facilitate the game. Uh, but um, by and large, it's been just absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm, I really feel good about this. I mean, this has only come up in the last three or four years since the migrant crisis. Uh, and, I mean, I learned a lot about the game in this new context, you know, originally the game was created for, okay, you're opening up a business in another country. What do you need to know about these people? You know, and I, I mean, I still do that kind of work. I mean, one of the, one of the power companies here in France got sold to General Electric in the United States. So I was, I went to Paris and Spain, got somebody in Brazil to do how to live and work with U.S. American business people. Um, that's that's still valid stuff, but putting people who have to live together and work together and be in the same community together uh gives it a whole new dimension the yeah you so you i mean i believe you started diversity in the 70s right early 70s yeah well what what happened was uh as i mentioned i originally created the game it was a board game oh you see the history on the on the website but and this was for kids to learn about each other in college dormitories, okay? And then I, I, I picked it up with a group of people who were trying to create training materials for diversity when that happened. So, um, you know, we're talking, it's, 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 it's got, you know, a good uh, 30 years history of being a game in, in that field. So... Um, I was wondering the... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you've been teaching all these years, you've been doing these training sessions and, and working with companies. What is, it that, what is it about it that makes you keep wanting to continue doing it? I mean, because you've been, you've been successful all these years doing all of this. What is it about it like that personally? What is it feeding in your, how is it feeding you personally doing all of this, being on this mission? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I get great satisfaction from seeing people learn. Uh, I enjoy being with people and, uh, I enjoy working with people. So it, it feeds my sense of, I don't have any family to speak of. I mean, I have, I'm by myself other than the people that I work with and so on. So it, it also fit meets a, a personal need to make good good contact with other people. I mean, I, I have second cousins and third cousins distributed around the USA and various places. It's impossible to go and visit them because they're all over the place, you know. They occasionally, they occasionally come here because we have a nice beach. Uh, <laughs> so so um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an the, the the training and the and the contact with people is always a great pleasure for me, and uh, even the fun of resistance. Uh, I, uh, I I forget who said this once upon a time that resistance is a bowl of cherries. When somebody's resisting you, you've got somebody in front of you with lots of energy, and if you can connect with that energy. It will make what's it will make it successful for that person and for the other people who observe this sort of thing going on. So that's the challenge. Um, one of the things about the diversity games is, as you know, we saw on the website we have eighty some different games and we're always developing them. Uh, it, one of the one of the 
perks for me is that this is also uh, a kind of um, continuing education. You know, somebody wants to do I mean, uh, I've had uh, first the migrant process with a uh, school in Finland, and that's spread to a number of different places. And then I, I worked with a, uh, a class in Dijon in the University of Burgundy, uh, and uh, they've just finished a game about food all over the world. And I'm, I, it looks like they may pick up, I hope they pick up on one for ecology. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's my opportunity to learn from all the research that people bring into as they develop these games. I don't develop them all myself. I mean, I'm responsible for a number of them, but, uh, you know, suddenly somebody came along the other day and, uh, you know, said, wow, I, I, we need this game in Slovenia. Can I translate it into Slovenian? And I said, yes, you can, you know. Um, so um, it's, it's the excitement of seeing it have impact. Uh, I mean, there's two things. There's me face-to-face -face dealing with a group, and there's that social connectivity and fun and learning that goes on there. And then there's the knowledge that, uh, you know, people are doing this all over the place, and, and it's it's benefiting the local communities who engage in it. And uh, to me, that's a, that's a good mission, especially when I'm 80 years old. <laughs> and how long have so, you lived in, in France by now? I think I'm going on 23 years now. That's the longest place, I, longest I've lived in one place in my life. Um, I was in California for about 20 years, but then I remember in... So 1992, I think I, I looked at the calendar and realized that I slept in my own bed, 62 days out of that year. Okay, <laughs> so you know because I was teaching in Indonesia and Europe, and I was I was living on an airplane most of the time. I was a colleague of mine who told me this story. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but I loved it. He said, "Well, you know, I went to bed, and." I couldn't quite sleep and I was hungry. So I picked up the phone and I said, uh, will you give me room, room service, please? And uh, the operator says, I, I don't think we provide that, sir. What kind of hotel is this? You don't have any room service? He says, sir, I think if you'll turn on the light, you'll see that you're in your own home. <laughs> <laughs> he was a guy who traveled yeah, as much as yeah. I did. <laughs> so, but... Uh, yeah, I think and the satisfaction, and it's a satisfaction of constantly something to create. Okay, whether I'm creating the men's cards online or writing some articles here, or I have the the LinkedIn um, uh, group for CETAR uh, Europa, Society for Intercultural Education Training and Research. I'm on their communication committee at the moment, and uh, so I'm posting every day for that and. Uh, you know, I've got connections on LinkedIn well close to 20,000. And uh, so, you know, we're putting that stuff out there. You don't know how many people are active. There's these little statistics they give you about who reads what. But it's, it's, it's also very interesting. Um, I'm not quite a, a millennial on my iPhone. I mean, I, this, here it is. It's still here. Um, and, um, and basically, I only pay attention to it when I'm traveling, but I'm realizing nowadays I have to pay attention to it because, you know, people are pouring stuff in there. So I, 
I have my I have my uh, interns help me out with communications. They're good at it. They're good at it. Yeah. We we have a really young audience. A lot of students listen to this. We're basically my my user base is about thirteen to twenty five, primarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have people you know over that as well, but but most of it, I would say, ninety percent are under the age of twenty five. And and what I try to do with this podcast is every week I try to bring a new person who is is either pursuing a, a creative field or is working uh, towards work using storytelling in in their workplace or in their daily life uh, to. So that can show these young people that if you if you have something to say, there are many different applications for that that can make you uh, either make a living out of it or or get some other satisfaction for that mm-hmm. creative force that you have. So sure. the final thing that I like to end on is uh, given the 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 audience that we have, is there a particular message that you would like to give them as, as these young people, you know, in their teen, teen years in some cases are, are embarking on their, you know, creative journeys, their particular message or piece of advice that we, you would like mm. to share with them? Mm. Well, first of all, um, the nice thing that I, uh, one more story, um, you need to know that I'm in my 20s, all right? Uh, the wonderful thing about living in France is that the word for 80 is 80, 420s. Okay. If I were in Switzerland, I'd be 80 years old, but I'm in my 20s here in France. And I think, um, you know, my, my advice is take the time to talk to people and listen to their stories. You know, uh, learn how to ask the questions that will help you connect with people's stories and, of course, share your own. This is the scary part, okay? And, and in growing up, you know, we, we sort of, there's lots of pressures to hide this side of me or that side of me, depending on who I'm with. And uh, telling the story, your story, and listening to other people's stories, that makes you very human. And, um, you know, there can be some dangers, but I, I think in the long run, as we expand our repertoire, both of stories and people to tell them to and listen to, uh, we become the real people of the future. So I love working with young people and, um, uh, you know, I try to encourage them as well as I can. And um, actually, I learn more from them than they do from me. <laughs> <laughs>